So where where were you when the 9-11 attacks happened? Well, the day 9-11 terrorist attack took place, uh, it was my day off. Tuesday, I remember still. And I woke up um, around 8.30 in the morning. And what I saw on TV, I thought it was a upcoming Hollywood movie trailer. And then when the second plane hit the tower, that time I realized it's, it's no longer a movie trailer. And when it became clear who the who the terrorists were who killed almost 3,000 people on 9-11, did, did you have any feelings about that and about what people were saying about the fact that they were Muslim themselves? I cried. I couldn't believe that, you know, uh, seeing the horror that how people could do this kind of heinous crime, you know, how people could hurt people like this. And um, I was angry. I was sad, and um, at the same time, I felt uh, afraid. I felt fear. Reis Buyan grew up in Bangladesh, but when he was 26, he moved to the United States, New York City. He was hoping to get a job in IT, and then to bring over his fiance, who was back in Bangladesh. After a couple of years, a friend invited him to move to Dallas. He invited me to visit Dallas, Texas. And uh, growing up watching Wild Wild West movies, I couldn't resist the invitation to visit Dallas. Excited to see the ranches, cowboys, and bars with their famous swinging doors. Though I never did find one. <laughs> Instead of a Wild West saloon, Ray started working at a gas station in a rough part of town. He was surprised that he liked the work. And I was excited that it would give me an opportunity to learn more about people, to get to know uh, American culture, and an opportunity to interact with people in Texas. But it wasn't an easy job, and it wasn't safe. It was 2.30 p.m., uh, I think middle of August, and a customer walked in with a dollar bill, and a soft drinks, and he's a customer. So I opened the cash register, he, he took out a gun out of his pocket, pointed at me, and he said, give me the money. It was so unexpected that at first, Race didn't understand that he was being robbed. And I thought he wanted to sell this gun. <laughs> Race assumed the man was looking to pawn his gun like it was an antique or collectible. Because in that gas station, people would come to sell their computer monitor, jewelry, printer, name anything to make some quick cash. So I thought this guy wanted to sell his gun. And I said, how much you're asking for? He said, give me the money. I said, yes, sir, but you're not telling me how much you're asking for. He said, no, 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 amigo, give me the money. I said, yes. So we went back and forth three times and then he cocked the gun and pointed at my forehead and he said, I'm going to blow up your brain if you don't give me the money right now. And that time I realized, oh, I've been robbed. So I gave him all the cash, he left, and I couldn't believe I was just robbed around 2.30 p.m. inside a gas station in my dream country. Our legal system is far from perfect, but there are some things it does really well so long as good people are there to help it along. Sue Ann, a sex worker in the Bronx, got justice against her attacker. 
A bunch of corrupt New York politicians and the men who bribed them paid for their crimes. And Eric Lisson, who served 17 years for a murder he didn't commit, finally got exonerated. But there are some things that the legal system just doesn't do, that it's not supposed to do. It's not necessarily built to provide closure, forgiveness, redemption. I'm Preet Bharara, and this is Doing Justice. Today, a story about a man trying to get the justice system to do something different, something it wasn't built for. At the gas station, Race often worked alone, sometimes on overnight shifts. Working in a gas station or convenience store is one of the most high-risk jobs in the U.S., right up there with police officer or prison guard. And for Race, a brown man living in the deep red state of Texas, it got even riskier after September 11th. Right after 9-11, people came to the gas stations, you know, some of them are very angry, saying a lot of uh, bad things about immigrants, about foreigners, about Muslims. I remember one day a guy came and um, he asked me to open the pump without paying up front. And I said, I cannot do that. You have to pay up front. And then he came back with a baseball bat and he said, you know, how much this glass cost and how much your life cost? And I was extremely afraid that, you know, just for merely, you know, not opening the pump, he's threatening to kill me. The guy with the baseball bat left, but he wasn't the only one who was angry, violently angry, after 9-11. Across town, a man by the name of Mark Anthony Stroman was just out of prison. Stroman was a white supremacist. He said he was a member of the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas, the state's largest and deadliest prison gang. It's been linked to dozens of murders of people of color in Texas prisons. There are members on the outside, too. Watching the towers fall, Stroman flew into a rage. It lasted for weeks. When he was out in his truck, he kept an eye out for drivers who looked Middle Eastern and started running their cars off the highway. On September 15, 2001, he grabbed his gun, got in his truck, and drove to a Dallas suburb. He walked into a convenience store where a 46-year-old Pakistani man named Wakar Hassan was grilling hamburgers. Stroman shot Hassan in the head, killing him, and left. The murder happened not too far from where Race worked. And when I saw that news, I was extremely terrified. I had a nightmare. Three nights in a row, I, I saw myself getting shot in the gas station. It was Friday, and business was pretty slow. It was around uh, 12.30 p.m. I saw through the glass window that a man wearing a bandana and sunglasses and a baseball cap and holding something very shiny on his right side and from my previous robbery experience, I realized that it would be another robbery. So I immediately opened the cash register and put all the cash on the counter. He walked in and I said, sir, here is all the money. Take it, but do not shoot me. But something was off. The guy didn't even look down at the cash. I felt the cold air flow through my spine why he was not looking at the money 
he should have taken the money and ran quickly. And then he mumbled a question. Where are you from? I thought he was here to rob me. Why he needed to know where I was from? And um, as soon as he asked me that question, I replied, excuse me. And I could not finish the entire sentence. He pulled the trigger from point blank range. I, I felt it first, like a million bees were stinging my face, and then I heard it, the explosion. And I looked down and saw blood pouring like an open faucet from the right side of my head. And frantically and instinctively, I placed both hands on my face, thinking I had to keep my brains from spilling out. I heard myself screaming mom on top of my voice, and then noticed the gunman is still standing there and I thought if I did not appear to be dying he would shoot me again so I fell to the floor after he shot me he did not say anything he was standing and watching me and um, it's a terrible feeling that somebody shoot you you don't know why and you are bleeding you are dying and that man is still watching you After Stroman left the gas station, Race got up and ran to the barbershop next door. I screamed, please call 911. I'm dying and I don't want to die today. And while he called 911, I caught myself in the mirror and I couldn't believe that was my face. I had become disfigured and was losing blood rapidly and was fighting to stay awake, fighting to stay alive. What do you remember about being treated in the ambulance? I was about to losing my consciousness. And uh, again, images of my loved ones started appearing one after another one. I was pretty much sure that my time was up. It's time to say goodbye to everyone in this world. It was a terrifying moment just to feel that your time is up and you are about to go. I started reciting from the Holy Quran, whatever verses I memorized so far. Two weeks passed, Race was recovering, and the police were looking for Stroman, who was still out for blood. On October 4, 2001, at 6.45 a.m., Stroman walked into another convenience store on the outskirts of Dallas. The owner, Vasudev Patel, was working the early shift. The store security camera shows Stroman demanding money from the cash register. When Patel reached under the counter for a pistol he kept there, Stroman shot first and killed him. The next day, Dallas police finally tracked down Stroman. They found him sitting in his car outside of his house. Police swarmed Stroman, who got out of his car and tried to run. He pulled a Smith & Wesson from his waistband, but dropped it in the confusion. The officers who were there 
say he was laughing and crying at the same time. Police found Stroman's Thunderbird filled with weapons, a loaded semi-automatic rifle with 150 cartridges, a submachine gun with 29 cartridges, a 44 Magnum, a 45 Colt, a bulletproof vest, some pot and rolling papers, a pill bottle with cocaine, some muscle relaxer, and an antidepressant. There was also a hat that said, show me your tits. In the 24 days after 9-11, Stroman shot three people and killed two of them. And after he was arrested, he, he voluntarily told the news media that what he did, most Americans wanted to do. They just didn't have the gut. He claimed himself, he's a true American, he's a patriot, he should be given medal for his action. He says he was a man on a mission to kill people of Middle Eastern descent following September 11th, and he confesses his crimes to Fox 4. Mark Stroman says he did it, and probably injured several more people, too. He was white supremacist Mark Stroman. He would go out and look for people who looked like they were Muslims, and he would just straight out shoot Mark them. Mark Stroman, a white supremacist, wanted revenge. Well, as a result of this shooting incident, um, I lost vision in one eye. Uh, I received more than three dozen bullet fragments in the right side of my face and skull. I underwent several eye surgeries, one after another one, but ultimately lost a better than perfect vision in my right eye. His face was healing, but the damage he suffered went deeper than just physical hurt. As Race went through surgery after surgery, his fiancée left him. Uh, I lost my home, my sense of security, my job, my fiancé, but gained more than $60,000 in medical bills. The mental, emotional, psychological, and financial recovery process you know, uh, was very painful because there was no loved one. There was... No family member here to comfort me, to provide support. The trauma of the violent attack was still fresh four months later when the trial began. The prosecution wanted Stroman to get the harshest punishment possible. They wanted the death penalty. Almost every year, Texas executes more people than any other state in the country. In order to get the death penalty, the prosecution would need to convince a jury that Stroman had committed capital murder. In Stroman's case, that meant proving he'd intentionally killed someone in the course of a robbery. Because Stroman had demanded money from Patel, they limited their case to that murder. They did not try Stroman for the attacks on Reis Bouyan and Wakar Hassan. But the prosecution did ask Reis to testify. I was extremely terrified to go to testify and sitting on the witness stand and seeing the person who did this heinous crime shot me in the face and took two innocent lives. For the first part of the trial, Race sat in the courtroom as an observer, right across the room from the man who shot him. Strowman was a big guy, bald, and covered in tattoos that Race recognized from the shooting. I tried not to look at him because 
I was afraid, still I was afraid to you know, see him face to face at that time. The prosecution called to the stand Vasudev Patel's widow, some police officers, and some other people Stroman knew. When they were done, Stroman's defense lawyer stood up and announced that the defense would rest its case. They made no argument for Stroman's innocence. It took less than one hour for the jury to come back with their verdict. They found Stroman guilty. For the death penalty phase, the prosecution called witnesses to testify about Stroman's character, building the case that he deserved to die. Finally, it was Race's turn to take the stand. And when it was asked to to point at the person in the courtroom who did this to me, and that time I looked at him in the eye for a few seconds. And uh, I felt sad. I felt sad for me. And I felt sad for him as well. And then the widows of Mr. Patel and Hassan, and I felt sad for everyone. And I testified and I said, yes, I see the person who did this to me. And I pointed him out in the courtroom. Stroman's lawyer asked for a sentence of life in prison, but it didn't work. He was sentenced to death by lethal injection. And um, I was in the courtroom. To be honest with you, I did not feel anything at that moment. It brought some comfort that by this verdict, by, you know, by putting him behind bars for the rest of his life and executing him at some point, he would never be able to hurt anyone anymore. Did you, do you remember if Stroman had a reaction in the courtroom? After he was given death penalty, he stood up, he showed his both thumbs, and he said, God bless America, something like that. After the trial, Race tried to get on with his life. He tried to forget about Mark Stroman. Stroman, meanwhile, spent a couple of years alone in his cell on death row in Livingston, Texas. He didn't get many visitors. Then, a documentary filmmaker reached out. And I kept writing to prison to try to secure an, an interview, and eventually said yes. Ilan Ziv was born in Israel and came to the U.S. in the 1970s. He's always been interested in human rights and social issues. Political, social, historical, it's, it shifted a little bit, but it's always within the political realm. He was working on a film about small groups fighting hate. That's sort of what brought me to Texas, to a particular group. And through them, I heard about Mark and about a hate crime. And I was intrigued. In 2004, Elon walked through the metal detectors and past the guards to take his seat in front of Mark Stroman, just on the other side of the window. On death row, you sit glued to a glass. He sits very close to the glass. I sit very close to the glass. So we have this proximity, which is not natural, if you like. So there's that kind of a forced intimacy, if you like. I can watch his face, I can watch his muscles, I can watch his eyes. I was constantly looking for clues to that pathological, cruel, you know, amoral, immoral 
cold murderer, and I found the opposite. I mean, he was a bowl of emotion. He was crying. He was a mess. Here's a clip from the film. I, I just wanted to start with, with some very simple questions. Okay. Describe to me what does it mean to live 23 hours incarcerated. Uh, what do you do 23 hours? Try to keep my sanity. Uh, read. Think about uh, past. And he was brutally honest, which for me was kind of refreshing. It still haunts me. I mean, everything I've done, I can, I, I shut my eyes and, you know, I can't escape it. You know, I, I have nightmares. The way he talked with this very Texas slang and very picturesque language, which is sort of Texan too with metaphors, my chances of getting out of here alive is like the chances of a ball of snow and a hot skillet. And he talked to me about childhood, and he talked to me about his life, and he talked to me about... So I grew very to know his life very intimately, and we talked about life, and we talked about death, and we talked about the fear of death. And we talked about hate. We talked about a lot of things. They started writing letters to each other, and Ilan kept visiting and kept asking questions. In a way, I feel that almost all the rage in you was triggered by September 11th. Yes, it was. But it was not about September 11th. No, uh, I really, it, it was. I know what affected my life. It was September 11th. I'll never forget it. Uh, a lot of hate and anger towards uh, uh, the Arab world. Seeing the images of people jumping off the buildings. Uh, people trapped in them planes, Flight 93. Uh, I'm, I'm very patriotic, and my country was attacked, so I kind of, I took it personal. Uh, so this was September 11, but what made you kill Wakir Hassan four days later on September 15? Uh, just reruns after reruns of the media coverage, watching it, uh, and it's just, just boiling up and boiling up, and just I just snapped. Uh, you know, the whole, everybody was saying, let's get them. Let's get the dirty bastards. Let's bomb them. Who? We didn't know, but um, as Americans, we was wanting justice. I will, I will tell you something which, which might shock you, but I think that Mark's reaction to 9-11 is basically a distorted mirrors of America. He did what all of the country did. He did what America called for. By the time Ilan met Mark Stroman, the U.S. had been in Afghanistan for three years and in Iraq for one. At the same time, the U.S. immigration system, the system that allowed race to come to this country, got even tougher. In the decade after 9-11, the Justice Department investigated over 800 hate crimes against Muslims, Arabs, South Asians, and other brown people. And those are just the incidents that were reported. Race eventually put his life back together. He got $50,000 from the Texas Victim Compensation Program, which helped cover most of his medical bills. He got a new job that he liked in IT. He leased a Nissan, and he leaned more and more on his faith. His life was finally back on track. In 2009, Race went on a pilgrimage to Mecca with his mom. 
As he circled around the Kaaba, he started to reflect more deeply on what had happened to him. I kept thinking about my shooting incident. I had two choices. Either see myself as a victim, remaining depressed, angry, and feeling sorry for the rest of my life, or follow my mother's advice, utilizing my God-gifted willpower to drop the grudge, thoughts of revenge, take control of my life, my happiness, and forgive, to move forward and uh, rebuild my life. I thought about my shooter sitting on death row waiting to die. I remembered a verse from the Holy Quran, chapter 5 and verse 32, where it says that saving a life is like saving the entire humankind, and taking a life is like taking the entire humankind. Race realized that he and Strowman had something in common. I know how it feels to be on the brink of death from my personal experience, pleading to God for a second chance. And instead of hating him, I began to see him as a human like me, not just a killer. I suffered terribly, but did not see any value in him suffering as well. I mean, his suffering would not lessen or erase all the pain and suffering he put me through. Yes, I forgave him. It makes me feel good in my heart that I was able to forgive my attacker. But what was the benefit? What was the outcome of this forgiveness? Forgiving Stroman helped Race feel better. But what good did it do for Stroman? He was still in death row and he was going to be executed pretty soon. And I felt that was not enough. I need to go the extra mile to save this life. So I started an international campaign to lower his punishment. Since that day at the gas station, Race had never talked to Stroman. Stroman had shown Race no mercy, no compassion, no remorse for what he'd done. Nevertheless, Race did something most of us, myself included, could never imagine doing. He started working as hard as he could to save the life of the man who almost killed him. It was now less than a year until Stroman was scheduled to die. Race launched a campaign to take Stroman off death row. And he went big. He got Amnesty International and other nonprofits involved. They hired a team of lawyers and started collecting signatures for a petition to commute Stroman's sentence. Now, the state of Texas says it's Mark Stroman's turn to die. But there's a twist. Ray's Bouillon is now fighting to save the life of the man who tried to take his. Ray's Bouillon joins us now from Dallas. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Meanwhile, Stroman himself got word of Ray's campaign to get him off death row. Blew my mind. It really did. It shocked me. It shocked me. Stroman reached out to Ilan Ziv, the documentarian. Mark wrote to me, said he wants to write a letter to all the victims. And I said, it's a fantastic idea. You be, be prepared the fact that they might not accept it, but you should write a letter. I think it's the, it's the least you can do. I would like to just read one paragraph and where he said that that my stepfather taught me some lessons that I should have never learned. I have unlearned some of them, and I'm still working on some of them. I don't know who your parents were, but it is obvious they are wonderful people to lead you to act this way, 
to someone you have every right to hate. May he thank my parents for raising me well and showing mercy and kindness to him. It's impossible to know whether or how Mark Stroman changed during his time on death row. He had a blog, and if you read the things Stroman wrote while in prison, none of it is straightforward. In one blog post, he'll express remorse for what he did, and in another, he'll say he was never racist. In one post, he says, quote, I don't need to explain myself or justify my past actions to anyone. I cannot tell what he had in his heart, but the way he acted, the way he, he talked about his crime and his redemption and what he was paying sitting in death row, I truly believe that he went through a transformation. Race doubled down on his commitment to getting Stroman off death row. In January of 2011, the state of Texas set the execution date for July 20th. Time was running out. Race reached out to the families of the two other victims, Hassan and Patel, and explained his mission to them. Some of them came to support his campaign. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Reis Huyan, and I'm here at the Trafalgar Square to pass a message on behalf of Mark Stroman, who is a death row inmate. In June 2011, with only one month until the execution, Race went on a media blitz. He took his campaign to Europe, where some companies that make lethal injection drugs are headquartered, and he asked them to stop sending those drugs to the U.S. As for Stroman, Elon says he was grateful for Race's efforts, but he wasn't optimistic. And Mark was completely never believed for one second anything. He participated in it because he felt if everybody's trying to help him, he's not going to be the one to spoil the party and says, guys, it's helpless, forget about it. So, I mean, I talked to him very honestly about it. He never believed for a second it wouldn't happen. Race pushed on. It was now just two weeks until Stroman's execution date. And so Race went back to Texas. Nothing had worked so far. So Race took his fight to the courts. He filed a lawsuit claiming he was denied his right to victim-offender mediation. Texas law says that victims of crimes have the right to a dialogue with their offender. A lot of states have this kind of law. But in Texas, there's even a Victim's Bill of Rights in the state's constitution. If race won, it would at least delay Stroman's execution. I'm Amy Goodman as we turn to Texas, where a hate crime victim is attempting to save the life of a convicted murderer. Stroman is pleading for forgiveness says he's a changed man. But what makes this story so extraordinary is that Race Bouillon is suing Governor Rick Perry in order to stop the execution of death row prisoner Mark Stroman. He's scheduled to die on Wednesday. Tell me, uh, what are your plans uh, or where do you plan to be on the day of the execution, if it happens? Well, uh, first of all, I'm very hopeful and I strongly believe that the Board of Prisons and Parole and Honorable Governor of Texas will listen to the victim's request. Race and his team hadn't made much progress. And finally, just like that, Stroman's execution date arrived, July 20th, 2011. Race woke up that morning, not knowing if Stroman would live through the day. Race still needed to argue his case before a state judge. 
and that wouldn't happen until 5 p.m. that day. Stroman was due to be executed at 6. Through all of this, Ray still had never spoken with Stroman directly, and no matter what happened at 6 p.m., he so badly wanted the chance to talk to him. But Race wasn't on Stroman's list of calls that day, and the prison wouldn't allow it. So the filmmaker, Ilan Ziv, had an idea. He separately called Stroman and Race and put them on speakerphone so they could talk to each other. So now he's on the phone, and what else I could tell to a person who is about to be executed in a couple of hours? So I told him, Mark, know for sure that I forgave you and I never hated you. And that was very important for me to tell him because he heard this from people, but now it is important that he's hearing the same thing from me, one of his victims. And he said, thank you. I never expected this from you. I love you, bro. And when he said, I love you, bro, I just couldn't hold my tears. It's the same human being 10 years ago shot me in the face for no reason. His heart was filled with anger, fear, hate, and intolerance. And that day he did not see me as a human being. He thought that this world would be a better place if I did not exist. And now, 10 years later, he's the same human being. But with a change of heart, he was able to see me as a human being. He was able to call me brother. And he said, love me. And then he said, Race, I never expected this from you. I have to go. They are, they're calling me. And then what happened to him? He was taken next to the execution chamber where he was waiting. And me and my legal team, we went to the court. Race went to the courtroom to plead his case before the judge. And this is Execution Watch. I am Ray Hill. Tonight is Execution Watch. We only do this show when someone is about to be executed. This is going to be a different series of Execution Watch because it is rapidly breaking into a breaking news story. This is a show from a local radio station in Huntsville. People around the country, death penalty activists, hate crime organizations, legal groups, they were all watching the case to see what would happen in the courtroom. What's going on with the Buyan, uh, Rise Buyan case? To be honest with you, uh, I can't answer that question. It was a, like a real-time law and order episode. It appears that there's some kind of a holdup somewhere. It appears to me that the legal beagles haven't made a decision. And if he fail, he's going to die. And if you win, he would get a second chance. And I was asked to testify why I filed this motion and why it is so important for having this dialogue with my attacker and why it is important to to save a human life. And while I was testifying, I looked in the eyes of the judge and people in the audience and I could feel there was a pin drop silence in the court. And I could see the judge's eyes were red. He was very moved. Ten years before, at Stroman's murder trial, the prosecution asked Race to testify, to help make their case and get the death penalty for Stroman. Now, Race was asking to have a say in Stroman's fate once again. But this time, he wasn't given the chance. Remember, Stroman was on death row for murdering Vasudev Patel, 
not for shooting race bouillon. The judge denied race's request for mediation. And then when the hearing was over, everybody left and I asked my lawyer, what is next? My lawyer said, there is nothing we can do today. The execution would go on as planned. Elon was in the room with Stroman when he was executed. Neither of them believed race's delay tactic would work, and they thought Stroman would be killed that day. But even though Elon knew it was coming, it didn't make it any easier. It's a tough moment. It's a tough moment because, again, we tend to discuss all of this thing in abstraction. The death penalty, it's not just somebody push a button, Mark died, and it's as clinical it is. You know, there are people involved, there are the warden, there are the people who feed the last meal. There are millions of people involved in this so-called ritual. As Stroman sat in the execution chair, he was asked to give his last words. He said that hate had to stop, that he was still a proud American and a proud Texan. He ended by saying, God bless America. God bless everyone. Let's do this damn thing. I was very sad. We tried so hard to save the life. Yes, definitely justice was served in the eyes of the law, but we lost a human being. Justice was served in the eyes of the law. A jury deliberated. The law was followed. A punishment was imposed. The methodical, grinding machinery of the law did what it was supposed to do. But the law has limits. The law is not in the business of forgiveness or redemption. It can't compel us to love each other or respect each other. It can't cancel hate or conquer evil or teach grace. The law cannot achieve these things, not by itself. It takes people, brave and strong and extraordinary people, to achieve those things. So I tell people that, you know, instead of rushing towards judgment, please take time. The forgiveness we all have within us, you need to go through a journey. And at the end, it has to come from within. From CAFE, this is Doing Justice, produced by Transmitter Media. This episode was written by Mitchell Johnson and produced by Shoshi Shmulevitz and Dan O'Donnell. This podcast is based on my book, Doing Justice, a prosecutor's thoughts on crime, punishment, and the rule of law, which you can find at doingjusticebook.com and wherever books are sold. We had production help from Jessica Glazer. Our editor is Sarah Nix, and executive producer is Greta Cohn. The executive producer at Cafe Studios is Tamara Sepper, and the chief business officer is Jeff Eisenman. Meryl Aguish fact-checked this episode, and Hannes Brown composed our original music and was our mix engineer for this series. I'm Preet Bharara. Plus a hat that said, show me your tits. <laughs> Good grief. For a behind-the-scenes look at each episode of Doing Justice, become a member of Cafe Insider and catch me in conversation with journalist Biana Galodriga. You can do so at cafe.com insider.